my name's Richard. It's very nice to see you. If you don't know me, um, I get to come along occasionally. I used to be here more often. Um, uh, but my wife runs the church, and so um, I just get out when I've uh, been behaving particularly well. Uh, and I, I get to come over here. But I do love coming to this service. And I've had COVID, so I haven't done very much for the last five weeks. I'm recovering, um, but I've not tried to speak uh, in front of a group of people for um, more than five minutes for a long, long time. Um, so that might make for a very short sermon. You never know. You can pray for it if you want, see how much faith you've got. Um, but there's some amazing things in this passage that I want to share with you. So, uh, so don't give up on it too early. Uh, it, it's astonishing. And it, it links us to a few different things. And uh, let's pray that they come out coherently, shall we? So we, so we get the most out of this. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we just want to hear from you through the scriptures today, through this amazing book of Zephaniah. I pray that you open our eyes to understand it, our ears to hear it, and our hearts to respond to it. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, just a straw poll. Did anyone here last week, was anyone here to hear Stephen's uh, talk? I was actually driving to Bristol in time for the football, but we listened to it on the way. And it was, it was a fantastic uh, exposition of chapter two of Zephaniah, a really short book. And what I want to suggest today is that Zephaniah is basically the gospel. And we're coming to the climax of it today. But it's really important to clock how long the build-up is before you get to the most amazing verse. And Amy, can you get Zephaniah 3.17 on the screen for us? Uh, Zephaniah 3.17 is, is, for me, the climax of this book. In fact, if you knew anything about Zephaniah before coming to this series at Christchurch, it was probably this verse. If you went to camps as a kid, um, cipher camps or script union camps, it was just one of the things that people would graffiti in your Bible at the end of a camp. It's one of those verses, Zephaniah 3.17. Can you say that with me? Zephaniah? Okay. And the key thing in this verse is it's the most important verse about worship in the whole Bible. And I'll try and explain that to you as we go through. Um, but there's the words. We'll rejoice over you with singing. I wonder who that's talking about. Maybe you know already. But at the moment, in uh, my sphere of life, it's report card time. Anyone else had anything to do with report cards? A few teachers in the room, some young people in the room. Anyone else have report cards and parents' evenings? Uh, most parents' evenings have been on Zoom this year, but we got to go in person to one. That's how good a parents we are. The school thought they ought to talk to us face-to-face. -face. Um, it wasn't about anyone in the room. Um, and it's one of those things, isn't it? Report cards. Now, depending on your upbringing, report cards may be unimportant to you, or they may put the fear of something into you. <laughs> Remember that story of the kid who brings home a report card, and it's like A-A-A-A-A-A-A-B-A-A, and the father goes, so why did you get a B? Now, many of us know that feeling, even if we don't relate to having got that many A's on a report card. The sense of, what are they examining in my life? What are they looking at in my life? Why do they always see what's wrong? I don't know if Stephen's chuckling because he only ever got A's in his report card or <laughs> just the feeling. I imagine it's just the feeling. But do you, know that? do you know that feeling? What are people, what do you want from me? During my COVID uh, time, I was isolating away and there wasn't a lot to do. I started listening to a book of the Bible, but I'm afraid I gave up on it after half an hour or so. Um, and 
I watched a series called NCIS on Amazon Prime instead. Um, and uh, it was interesting because there was a lot in there that reminded me of the longing for God that we've got. If, if you've never seen the series, it's basically an extended examination of our need for a father. It's all about how much we need a father. There's a sort of hero character played by a guy called Mark Harmon, who is he's an ambiguous character. Like, he's, he drinks a lot. He's quite violent. He's a, basically a mute person. He barely says anything. He waxes uh, employees around the head uh, to tell them off. But yet, he's a bit of a hero character. He, he's an American cowboy, if you like. It, you know, he's a cowboy genre. He's a, he's a modern cowboy. Has been a sniper in the army. Uh, fearless, brave, bold, keeps going. And one by one, the characters in this story keep coming to him for affirmation. Like they're longing for him to look them in the eye and go, you're right, it's okay. And, and a few of them, their own fathers, are introduced into the story. One of the key guys, his dad was an admiral who never gave him any attention at all, but always was like, perform higher, perform higher, perform higher. Another guy's dad was one of those absent dads who'd gone off and uh, squandered all the money, went with different women to his mother and just left him with a sort of hollow brokenness inside. And he's looking for affirmation and approval as well. And it keeps playing out all these stories, one after another. Some people trying to be good dads, some people longing for a dad, some people wondering if they'll ever be able to father or wanting to father. And the whole play of those things are just writ there. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because if I was to get you to do the sort of exercise that you've made us do the other day at the six o'clock service and said, talk to your neighbor about something, I wonder what God would write on your report card. If that was your conversation to buzz with, what would God write on your report cards? You know, achievement grade and effort grade. At my school, you always thought, wow, if I can just get a high uh, attainment with a low effort, then I've won, haven't I? <laughs> That's, if I can get a C1, I've, I've won at life. Then I'm just cruising, <laughs> I'm cruising. But what would God give you on your life? Trying hard? Failing? Failing? Not trying hard? Where would you fit yourself in? Well, let me put it another way. If God was writing a song about you, what would be in the lyrics of that song? Try and, try and listen to it. Is it an upbeat song? A fast song? Is there, is there a beat going on? Is it a slow song? Is it the sort of song that only your dad would listen to? Is there a bit of rap going on in there? Is there sort of changing pace coming through at times? Would it make it onto Tolu's album? Out today? You can download it from all good music providers. What's it called again? Authors of the City. On Friday, out on Friday. This is, can we, can we get him on camera? Is there a camera? We, jump up, Tolly, jump up. There's people watching online, they need to. Authors of the City, out on Friday. Tolly's take on the world, the universe, life. Why should people um, download your album? Uh, because it's the truth. Because <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the truth, response to uh, racism, faith, culture, community. Um, everything to do with everything we went through the past year and how, as Christians, how are we going to deal with that and actually live with the Spirit? 
Awesome. You should get it because it's the truth and it deals with big issues out at the moment. Authors of the City, out on all your music providers on Friday. I've listened to a few of the tracks worth having. I've heard some of the tracks being recorded even. But if it was you that Todd was writing the album about from God's perspective, what's the song going to sound like? Hold on to that thought because we'll hit it at the end. Because this chapter, like the rest of Zephaniah, tells two really big stories, and they're really, really important. If in future years you move away from London, you can't be here anymore, you've got to make sure that whatever church God takes you to covers both of these two stories, okay? It's vital. The first story is basically you're more wicked than you ever imagined. You're more wicked than you ever imagined. See, the whole story of Zephaniah mirrors what Paul writes in Romans. He basically sets out a bunch of things that people have tried to do, and he says, ultimately, I'm going to have to destroy all humankind because of them. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He talks about the different nations that Stephen was talking about last week, and he says that the Lord's fierce anger is going to have to come upon them in the day of God's wrath. He says, I will destroy you. There will be none left. He says that they'll get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty, uh, the destruction of all the earth. You'll be slain by my sword, he says to one group. I'll destroy you. You're more wicked than you ever imagined. Now, why this is really similar to the most important doctrine book in the New Testament, Romans, is because that's what Romans 1 to 3 spells out as well. But there's a punchline to it that you get at the beginning of this chapter. And the punchline is the, but have a look at yourself if you think you're okay. I don't know if Tolly's album does this, but I imagine it probably does. You know, when you point a finger at someone, you're pointing at least three fingers back at yourself, aren't you? And what, what Romans says and what Zephaniah is saying here in verses 1 through, uh, through 8 of chapter 3 is woe also... So what it calls the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Now, what is this city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled, that Ethan was reading about to us? What was this city of oppressors, this rebellious? We've gone through a list of bad, bad places, of Cush, of Moab, of all these places that, as Stephen was explaining, were places born out of incest and rebellion and rape and all these sort of places where there was child sacrifices going on, where there was awful wickedness going on. What is the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Well, if you were listening to this when it was written, you'd be like, oh yeah, it must be Egypt, or it must be Babylon, or it must be Assyria. It must be some awful place. It says she accepts, obeys no one, accepts no correction. She doesn't trust in Yahweh. She doesn't draw, draw near to her God. Hang on, Yahweh is her God. Why, does, why is Babylon not drawing near to Yahweh? Why is Assyria not drawing near to Yahweh? Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening walls. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets, how come, how come, how come they've got prophets? Are unprincipled. They're treacherous people. Her priests, priests profane the sanctuary. What sanctuary? They do violence to the law. What law? What is this wicked city out there? This terrible other place that's more wicked than all the other places. The Lord within her. Hang on. The Lord within her, where is the Lord? He's in Jerusalem. The Lord within her is righteous. He does nothing wrong. Morning by warning, he dispenses justice. And every day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. 
In verse 7, O Jerusalem, I thought, surely you would fear me and accept correction. Her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come on her. It's the three fingers back place. It's the good Christian. It's the heart of Judaism. It's the place where the law is, the place where temples have come and gone down the centuries. That he looks at and goes, the priests profane the sanctuary, the prophets are awful. And then, this is the hard truth, isn't it? Some of you came last year to um, our garden um, for luminosity screening, the luminosity screening. And in our garden, we have this like oversized paddling pool. It's great. You can practically swim around in it. It's, it's lovely. It's about two foot deep and 16 foot round circle. And uh, the problem with it is that if you're hanging out in it and flying ants happen to be swarming across uh, Chiswick, as they did yesterday, it fills up with flying ants. Or if the tree happens to be touched by the merest breath of wind, leaves come trickling down into it. And if somehow the pond and the pool are quite close together, a cross-pollination of pond water seems to suddenly happen by an invisible process that no one quite understands how it happened. I don't know if someone goes like foot washing in the pond and then jumps in the pool, but anyway, you leave it alone for a few days, this glorious, clean, chlorine lad pool gets a little bit murky. You leave it for a few days more, it's got a layer of green on it. You leave it for a week or two, in the heat, and suddenly you've got sludge on the floor that you can feel if you slide yourself around on. And at that point, you know you need to empty it and start again, but it's a lot of effort to empty it and start again. It takes a day to fill it up. So you leave it a bit longer, and it's murky, 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 isn't it? And that's such a great metaphor for our life. We can start out really beautifully clean and clear, but it's so easy to get murky, murky, murkier, murkiest, sludgy mess. And the thing that we need to get from this first bit of Zephaniah is that even when God works really hard on a group of people like the ancient Israelites, even when he gives them the law, even when he gives them prophets and priests and all the starter help that you could possibly want, it's easy to get murky. Murkier, murkiest. It's easy to end up as a slimy, slimy mess if you stop rejuvenating and refreshing the pool. And the second half of the story, though, after you're more wicked than you ever imagined, is that you are more loved than you ever dreamed. You're more loved than you ever dreamed, to use Rico Tice's great phrase. Now, Go back to that report card, that song God's going to write over your life. wonder what you think is on it, or maybe should be on it, that report card over your life. And before you hone in and answer it, I want to take you into another little bit of the New Testament, just for a second, a really famous chapter that we teach on most years, maybe more than once a year. There's parable of the lost stuff. And we have a lost sheep and a lost coin and then a lost son. And do you know in those parables, you, you're familiar with them, I'm sure, something gets lost and then it gets found. There's an incredible phrase here. Uh, at the end of the first one, it says, rejoice with me. 
Um, I found a sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. There'll be more joy in heaven. There'll be rejoicing in heaven. Have you heard that phrase? There'll be rejoicing in heaven. Sometimes we have a baptism. We say they're rejoicing in heaven now. But who is doing the rejoicing? This is the brain-expanding point. Head to the second parable. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, I always thought it was the angels who were kicking up the joy thing here. I always thought it was the angels who were the joy harmony in the angelic chorus, the symphony. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know, they're going like, they're going for it crazy. Hooray, hooray for God, hooray for God. But it sounds like when you read it, that they're the, the witnesses, the mirror, the chorus to the main event, to the main soprano or alto or bass voice singing. And who's the great tenor of them all? It's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father who are doing the rejoicing. So here in Zephaniah, the Lord is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. And there's a different translation of that that I'll take you to in a second, but just get the message of where it goes. The Lord is with you. He's the mighty warrior who saves you. And he will take great delight with you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. It's God who kicks off the chorus, who no longer rebukes you. He rejoices over you singing. His song for you that he's waiting to sing for you is the song of the redeemed. It's the song of the returned. It's the song of love. It's a song that just goes for it. Now, why Romans was a good parallel to bring into this is so important here. Because when it comes to your report cards, you have that attainment grade and the effort grade, don't you? And you're like, if I just put in a bit more effort next year, maybe I'll get the 7 plus or the 5 minus or the 3 plus or the 9 minus or the 75 other grades that I could possibly get or the degree that John was trying to get this morning in his sermon this morning, or the doctorate that I'm just be trying to get to as well, maybe if I try harder, I will make the grade. But what the first bit of Zephaniah and the first three chapters of Romans prove is that you're more wicked than you could ever imagine. You can't make the grade. As Romans 3.23 puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not that we need a little helping hand to get round the last corner and complete the stuff that we're trying to do. It's not that we need like a great youth worker to just drag us into line so that now we're performing superbly, although thankfully we've got a great youth worker uh, or two or three or more in the church to help out. It's not that we just need just a little bit of extra help. It's that there's a mighty chasm between us and God as far as the other side of the green over there. And it's not that we can just get on a rocket patch and go a bit higher. We're stuck. You're stuck. You're more wicked than you ever imagined. Hallelujah. And that is such great news. Why, you say, why is it such great news that I'm more wicked than I ever imagined? It's because it's not on you anymore. You can't just try harder and make the grades. 
You can't sit down with your parents for a pep talk after they've come home by being up by teachers to tell you to tell them to try harder and get a bit harder. You can't do it. You can't make the grade. It's fantastic news. What does this well, Just quit. No, you have to rely on the one who makes the grave for you. You see, Zephaniah is rammed full of predictions of God coming to really judge stuff and really sort stuff out. But you only have to look around and realize that's not all happened yet. The swimming pool is still murky. This week, Nicola and I went away with uh, Compassion UK, and there's this lovely phrase they have. They're, they're the ones that um, we, we sponsor children through Compassion UK. The youth sponsor a couple, and lots of families and church sponsor kids through Compassion. There's this lovely phrase as we watched a video about kids in the slums in, uh, in a part of Africa that they have. They say, you can't change the world for everyone, but for one person, you can change the whole world for them. Can't change the world for everyone, but by sponsoring a child, great thing to do. You can change the world for that one person. And something like this is going on here. Because God doesn't lie. Where he promises judgment, judgment is coming. But it's coming in two different phases. And this is why we're now already in the good news. We're already in a place where we know we're loved more than we imagined. And watch how this works out. This is really important to understanding the whole Bible. And then I'll sit down and let you get on with your life. Um, I might lie down, in fact. Um, this is so important for getting the whole thing. Because one day he is going to judge everything and make everything okay. Every yearning you have in your heart where you see that World Vision advert on the minor channels at the moment asking you to sponsor a child and you just want to flip forward past it on your cruise control TV. Every time you see something in the news that makes you go, ah, you see the floods in Germany, you see all the pain around in the world, you see the way that people were horrifically, horrifically racist to those lovely, lovely, amazing footballers after, after last week's match, where you see the thing going totally wrong. You know the promises in Zephaniah and Romans and Revelation are coming true. There is going to be a judgment and God is going to separate the bad from the good. And every bad bit he's going to get rid of. Zephaniah promises that. Romans promises that. Revelation promises that. Jesus promises that. Again and again, I will judge the living and the dead. I'm going to come and separate the sheep from the goats. Judgment's coming. There will be a clean swimming pool in God's new heaven and new earth to enjoy. You don't have to live with the pain forever. Bullying will cease. Bad bosses will cease. There will be hope forever. That's coming. Judgment is a great part of the Bible. It's the thing we're all longing for when we say, why is there suffering? We're asking for a judge. And that is a crucial, crucial part of the gospel. We're more wicked than we can imagine, but there's a judge coming. But it comes in two halves. You see, as the songs we were singing earlier were singing about, his blood pays the price, speaks a better word. And already on that cross, judgment for your sin and mine was meted out. And so that's why that's such an important bit of theology and why it's always contested by liberal theologians. We need this to be a place of judgment because it needs a price to be paid. 
And on the cross, Jesus dies in your place, in my place. He pays the full price for my wickedness and sin. And just as with compassion, he can't change the whole world for everyone in the regime that is currently set up because he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Nevertheless, the world can change entirely for any one person who says, yes, you've paid the price for me. Judgment's completed. And when judgment's completed, it says, the Lord is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He takes great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. I mean, what a beautiful thing to happen, to get to the point where he rejoices over you with singing. But just pick out that second translation of this verse as we close here, because I really want this to rest home with you. The Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That's the first place. He sees you coming back to him and he goes, I rejoice that you've come home to me. It makes him glad. Isn't that an amazing thing? You can make the creator of the universe glad. Like the finder of a lost coin or the finder of a lost sheep. You make him glad. He rejoices over you. He just goes, I'm glad. It's you. You know, you open the door to someone. Go, oh, hey. Hey. WhatsApp clicks on your phone or a tweet or something. And you go, oh, oh hey. And it's a hey. He's rejoicing over you. He's so glad to see you. He's listened to your album already and he's smiling and he's forwarding it to all his friends and he's saying, come on, listen to this album. He's glad, it's you, it's you. He's glad, he rejoices over you with gladness. Secondly though, it says he quiets you with his love. <laughs> It'd be a bit overwhelming if someone's totally glad, isn't it? You know, And you're coming to him with what Zephaniah 3 describes as shame because you know you've let the swimming pool get murky. So just like if you've ever had a one-to-one -one with Peter over there, Peter, our keyist tonight, and you're just feeling a bit rubbish about yourself, a bit shameful about your sin, a bit rubbish about everything, he does this. He quiets you with his love. He is one of the great spiritual fathers of our church family quiets you with love it's a beautiful thing isn't it and Raymond says that it's the riches of God's kindness that draws us to repentance he just draws you in with love he's not just having a party that's that one-to-one -one with you as well and you might want to go but I've sinned I've failed I'm rubbish the report card I wrote for myself is terrible the song I wrote for myself is like so depressing only Coldplay could have sung it it's just ah! and he just goes come on quiets you with his love just with you quietly with you beautiful and then lastly he exalts over you with loud singing he takes you back outside he puts on the, what do you call them, Tolly? The, am I getting it right? <laughs> I'm not getting it right. But I wasn't really aiming for that because we've got people who can do that sort of stuff here. Tolly's your man for that. He makes it loud. He turns up the, what do you call the thing at the back? Yeah, the volume. And he starts going, that's my boy Levi. Woo! He's back. 
He's in the house. He's here. That's my girl, Beth. Here she is. Look out for her. Got plans for her. And he publicly makes a spectacle of you until you're totally in the place you should be. He's a phenomenal father, your father in heaven. Let's stand up, shall we, as we respond to this. He's a phenomenal father, your father in heaven. If father's a hard thing for you to get your head around, and it's a hard thing for lots of us to get our head around, feel disappointed by human fathers, that's because there's a longing in you for a heavenly father. And frankly, no man who ever walked this earth ever made the grade of the high level that God set for, for us. We long for this heavenly father, this one who's just glad to see you, this one who can quieten you down and then can go, yeah, she's my girl. Yeah, he's my boy. She's my woman. He's my man. And make a public display of you. And he's singing a song over your life. And the most important thing about you today is whether in your imagination, in your thought, in your poetry, in your heart, in your soul, in your belly, you can somehow tune into the fact that that song's going on right now. And you can believe the truth of it about yourself. Because it's not that you've been a really good girl or boy or man or woman or whatever. Because you're more wicked than you can ever imagine. Newsflash, if you've been trying to be really good. <laughs> There's a really bad thing going on in every human being. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We can't make the grade. The grade's way over there. But Jesus has made a way to over there. When we walk over it with him, however much we failed, he just pours in this beautiful stuff of his love as he sings over us. And suddenly the pool's clear again. It's clear again. It's clear again. It's clear again. Heavenly Father, we want to hear your song over our lives today. And I pray as we respond that you might prophetically reveal that song that is individual to each one of us in some way that makes sense into the life of everyone watching this at home or in the building today. Speak, Lord, your servants hear us. We want to hear your song over our lives. Thank you that it's all about what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you that you really have paid the price for us. The full judgment for our sins has already been paid for, and we can say yes to that right now. We can just thank you that you've already paid the price and live as people are already free, even though the final judgment is still to come. Thank you that you've taken away the wrong and the bad and you can take it away from my life again and again and again until I'm clean and pure and free. The spirit of the living God as Stephen and the band just lead us in response. Help all of us to be part of that response now as we hear you and respond to you in love. <laughs>